The reading this morning is from Luke 5, 27 to 39. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable, no one tears, a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilt and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Anne. Um, I'll just kind of clarify. Um, the, there's a wee slide with the Moldova mission kind of giving details. You can give directly to them or you can, some of you have given to us and we can kind of pass that on, but I um, don't really want to tell you exactly how to give to, to that kind of relief, but just kind of give you options. So um, Mark's doing good work there and all those pastors. So great opportunity. Um, just going to pray for us and we'll, uh, we'll dig in. Uh, Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. Yeah, we thank you for showing us who you are, ultimately in the sending of your own son. And we thank you for Jesus who, who came to seek and save the lost, to seek out those who are sick and in need of a healer. Um, open our eyes, Lord, to, to our condition, to who Jesus is in a fresh way this morning, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, uh, as most of you know, Northern Ireland's a place, it's becoming less and less like this, but it's a place where most people are familiar with things of the Bible. Uh, most people are familiar with Jesus. Um, everyone knows like the Sunday school stories. Um, and so I wonder if in, in our context, have you ever asked someone, are you a Christian? Um, have you ever, if you've asked someone that, um, you may have gotten one of these familiar responses. Maybe, maybe one of these responses has been one of your responses in the past, but one common reply is, well, I try to be. I, I try to uh, live my life in a Christian way. Um, so for that person, uh, 
Christianity is about trying to obey a certain set of rules. Um, however, the Bible teaches us that Christianity is, is nothing like that, really. Um, Christianity is, is, more like, is more like a marriage. Um, so if you've ever asked someone, are you married, the predominant responses are either yes or no. Um, you're being, being married uh, is, is a relationship that you're either in or you're, or you're out of. Um, you can't really aspire to be married. It's something that you, ah, you kind of fall in and out of. Um, imagine uh, my wife Jenny overhearing me give someone that answer, well, I try to be married. Um, that'd be devastating for her, wouldn't it? Because marriage isn't something that you aspire to. You're either married or you're, you're not married. There's no kind of in-between. It's, it's not a set of, uh, Christianity is the same. It's not a set of rules that you, you try to abide by. Instead, it's a, it's a relationship that you're either in or you're not in. Um, others might say uh, Christianity is about building up a set of rituals or practices. Um, I go to church. I was baptized. I, I partake in the Lord's Supper. It's about these practices that you, you build up over a lifetime, and that makes you a Christian. Um, that idea uh, of Christianity is also nowhere to be found in the Bible. Um, Christianity, it's not like a, a being part of a golf club uh, where you have to kind of make it along to a certain amount of AGMs to kind of keep your hand in. Um, you see, going to church and partaking in certain rituals don't make you a Christian. Being around and having Christian friends doesn't make you a Christian. Um, it doesn't work that way at all. Christianity is not about rituals that we practice. It's about a relationship with Jesus. Um, and so that's the question that we should ask our brothers and sisters. It's the question that ultimately we should be asking our, our friends and our families and our neighbors and our coworkers. It's, it's do you know Jesus? Um, and what we've seen through the first five chapters of Luke's gospel here is, is that at Christianity, it's different from every other religion, isn't it? Um, we're not making our way up the mountain to find God. Instead, he's coming down the mountain in order to find us. We're not making ourselves fit in order for God uh, to love us. He actually, in a way, makes himself fit for us. It's out of his love for us and that while we were sinners, he actually comes and takes on our sin. He, he's this eternal word who puts on flesh and becomes like an infant like us. He's, he leaves the glory of heaven and he enters into our darkness. So Jesus in that way is coming down the mountain in this truly humiliating and, and humbling experience, ultimately to die for us. Um, which is exactly what you see going on in these small stories we've been kind of studying the past number of weeks. Uh, what we've seen so far is the gospel's all about Jesus. Um, it's all about Jesus coming and dealing with sin. Um, and what we see in today's section and what you'll see through the rest of the, the Gospels as Luke is showing us in, in that mission, in his coming and dealing with uh, sin, Jesus has this, this polarizing effect, doesn't he? And we already have been told this about Jesus back in chapter 2. Remember Simeon prophesying over the infant Jesus and he tells Mary and Joseph that, that this child is going to divide the world. He's going to be radically inclusive but he's also at the same time going to be radically divisive, um, which is what we've seen already, haven't we? Like some people in, in Luke's gospel even so far have, have flocked to Jesus. They're, they are, they are uh, celebrating, they're rejoicing what he's doing. Some, some villages want to physically stop him from leaving. They want him so much. But then others attempt to throw him off a cliff. That The Pharisees are, are outraged at his claims to have the authority to forgive sins. 
You see, on one hand, for some people, what Jesus does, what Jesus says, who Jesus is, is, is unspeakably wonderful, like more wonderful than we can ever imagine. But at the same time, we see in every generation, Jesus and his words and his works will be hated. Like Jesus and his words and his works will be described as unspeakably evil by some. And we begin to see here in today's section that the people who, who tend to think the latter, the people who tend to hate Jesus, they're almost always the most religious, most uh, committed to obeying rules and religious rituals. And so this section it should serve as a warning to us, um, should see, seek as a warning to, to us who are trying to, to follow Jesus. So as we read and, and kind of heed to the warning today, there's really uh, two points that I want you to see. So I don't even have any slides today. There's two points. Um, firstly, what we see is the, the unpalatable grace of Jesus. And that's what we see in this first section. So from verse 27, read it again. It says, after this, he, that's Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed Jesus. So remember what Jesus, his mission is. Remember what his, he, he had come to do. We looked at that back in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the poor, uh, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed. And that's it's exactly what you see happening for some people. It's what you see happen to Peter a couple weeks ago. It's what you see happen to Levi here. Like both of those men are just completely changed and they actually respond in identical ways by leaving everything behind and following after Jesus. Um, what's Levi's case though, it's uh, extraordinarily interesting uh, for two reasons. Um, firstly, because some scholars believe that Levi possibly came from uh, the tribe of Levi. So if you know what that is, it's this, this family group, this, this people uh, of, the, of the Israelites who were, who were set apart by God to minister in the temple. They're to, they're to offer sacrifices for the people's sins. Essentially, these, these priests were to be mediators between God and, and His people. Um, extremely important family group. Um, and if that is the case, then Levi being a tax collector is a huge, huge deal because it's essentially a massive fall from grace. The Levites, they, they, were, they belonged to God. They were set apart by God to do His work. So Levi here working as a tax collector for the Roman Empire was a massive disgrace. It's this Jewish man perhaps the son of a priest who's working for the Romans. The tax collectors were the most despised, and they were commonly viewed as the ultimate sinners. You, you could not get any worse, any more despicable, any more filthy than a tax collector because they were traitors. They were enemies of God, enemies of God's people. They were collecting taxes from the Jews to give to the Roman Empire who were occupying their land. They were aligned and supporting the persecutors of God's people. More than that, they were known for skimming off the top and actually lining their own pockets. They were extorters. They were considered the lowest of the low. Tax collectors was synonymous with sinners. That's why anytime you read about them, it's always the tax collectors and the sinners. Um, Levi was someone 
who should have been serving God, who should have been ministering to God's people, but instead he's serving himself and a pagan enemy. Um, and especially to the religious elite here, the Pharisees, the, the vanguards of holiness, they consider them especially despicable. They consider them actually unclean. Association with them, touching them was unclean. Um, it's hard to, when we try to contextualize this and, and think of who, who is the equivalent of Levi in our context today, um, some people have uh, suggested maybe the violent criminal, um, the, the drug kingpin, maybe even the pedophile locked in his home for fear of vigilante attack, like complete social outcasts. And yes, those people do have that sin sickness that only Jesus can heal, that only Jesus does heal. It's a little more complicated than that, though, because Levi, this tax collector, although he's despised, he's not completely friendless, is he? Because he throws this, this feast, this party, and there's lots of guests um, there. Um, so Levi isn't short of friends. He's not short of influence. He's probably more like a, a shady businessman or a, a compromised but powerful politician or possibly even the son of a minister who grew, who grew up in church. He knew the ways of the church, but he's taken no interest in the things of God. He's gone his own way. He's become very successful. Um, he's, he's influential among the social elite. He's popular. He's congenial. He's despised by moralists on one hand, but he's accepted by the powerful. That's more of who Levi is for us today. In verse 27, we have him sitting at the tax booth. He's probably going about his usual business, um, thinking about what's next. He's furthering his, his career. He probably thinks life's going to go on just as it always has. Uh, but in walks Jesus. Jesus suddenly uh, is standing over Levi. We don't have every single detail. We don't know if this is the only, is this the very first interaction we, they have? We don't know. Um, uh, I'm sure Levi uh, knows who Jesus is. Remember, Jesus is a bit of a celebrity at this point. But the way that Luke writes it, it's as if Levi, in this moment, he completely understands that this person standing before him knows all about him. Like he knows about his blasphemy, his rejection of his family, his cheating, the extortion, the lies, the deceit, the theft. And yet he senses that Jesus loves him anyway. As Jesus speaks these two powerful words, which changes Levi's world forever. Follow me. And that's all it takes. <laughs> Like Levi gets up, just like Peter, James, and John, he leaves everything behind. He leaves his booth, leaves his ledger, leaves his, his money pouch. All he's concerned now is what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is going. Do you notice Jesus is the one who takes all the initiative? Like it's not like Levi says, there you are, Jesus. I've been looking for you. Have a seat. Um, I've, I've, been, I've been studying what you're doing. I've been thinking it through for quite a while. I've weighed it all up, and I think it's, it's worth me taking a punt on you. I, I think it's, it's actually beneficial, probably worth having you as part of my life. That's not what happens. All that happens here is the powerful words of Jesus and his effectual call, call Levi, and he responds. It's actually all Jesus, and from here on out, Levi's life is all about following after Jesus and nothing else. 
It's not, not to say that people don't investigate Jesus, that people shouldn't consider him deeply. It's not that some people don't have a long line of things that, that brings them to faith. But the point here is that Jesus is the one who does all of that. Jesus approaches Levi. He interrupts his life. He calls him, and Levi just gets up and follows after him. And from here on out, Levi is changed. He leaves everything else behind. All he cares about is Jesus. He, he's enamored by Jesus. He loves Jesus. He, he throws Jesus a party. And Jenny and I, our kids are, are getting a little bit older, uh, which means we're getting older as well. Um, but uh, our, our oldest, Abe, he's nearly 10. He's kind of out of this stage. Our, our youngest two are, are kind of still in it. They're in this, this phase where they just want to be with mommy and daddy. And younger kids uh, have it particularly. There's a period in a child's life where they're just enamored by their parents. Um, they, their whole life is about you. They just want to be with you. They don't really care about anything as long as you're involved. Uh, when you walk into a room, their face lights up. When you walk out of the room, they fall into despair. If you walk around a room, they're, they're just fixed on you. And that's a bit what like, being a Christian is meant to be. Like, I just want to be with my dad. I just want to, to, to follow him wherever he goes, eyes just fixed on Jesus, captivated on him alone, uh, recognizing his voice, delighting in his voice. And from this moment on, that's what it's like for Levi. His life's no longer about his tax booth, about his money, about his career. It's only always and forever Jesus. In fact, Levi has another name, it's Matthew, and Matthew goes on to, to write the gospel of Matthew. He has this complete identity change. And Luke, I think he wants us to consider this from the perspective of the outsider looking on, though. Um, and, and the main response is, wow, really? Levi? Like, no one saw this coming. Are you sure? It, it might be like saying, really? Donald Trump, he, he's honestly become a Christian. Boris Johnson, Ricky Gervais, are you, are you sure this is, you, this is a genuine follower of Jesus? Imagine what you'd think if they left everything behind and followed after Jesus. It'd be astonishing, wouldn't it? It'd be amazing, but if we're honest, a lot of us might be critical of it. Really, are you, are you sure they're really followers of Jesus? After everything they've done, after everything they've said, it's so easy to write these people off. Can any of us in a million years think of Vladimir Putin becoming a Christian, leaving it all behind and following after Jesus? But here Jesus proves that no one is too far gone. No one is too much of a traitor who's too evil, too powerful, too ingrained in secular culture to be radically changed by the powerful words of Jesus and his effectual call on them. Do you believe that? What about someone less dramatic, like your close friend, your coworker, your family member? Follow me, Jesus says. And Levi, the last person you'd, you'd think would respond, does. I wonder if it was maybe just as much of a surprise for Levi. 
Um, like he spent his entire life purposefully going in this direction, away from God, away from God's people, serving only himself, his desires, and yet Jesus completely changes him. I bet he's just as surprised as anybody else. I wonder how many Levi's are in the room today. Maybe you're someone who everyone has always written off spiritually. You're, you're too far gone. People have, have considered you uh, too, spiritually too far, but you've heard the call of Jesus and you've left it all behind and you followed him. Maybe you're someone who's writing yourself off. Maybe you think, nah, I, I'm a spiritual impossibility. You don't know the things I've said. You don't know the things I've said about, about God and the church. Isn't it the best news that Jesus came to earth for people exactly like you, people like me? The spiritual write-offs, the spiritual outcast, the spiritual nobody, the spiritually hopeless, the spiritually too far gone. You see, Jesus, he did not come for the spiritually well-off. He came for those who are very, very sick. On the flip side, I wonder who are the Levi's in our lives that we tend to write off spiritually? Who are the people in your life that you think are just too far gone? We don't even bother trying anymore. It's encouraging to, to, to know that Jesus calls those kinds of people. Jesus actually calls them to be part of his mission. It's wonderful, isn't it, that we can speak to those people, that we can love those people, that we can dine with those people, and, and you don't have to worry about trying to reach in and convince them with your words, but that God actually uses you to do that. He, he, actually, he actually works through those things, but it's him that does that, so don't give up on those people. Of course, they might hear his words and reject him, um, but I tend to just leave that up to Jesus. His grace is incredible, isn't it? Um, it's almost too good to be true at times, too wonderful. But this text shows us that at the same time, it's also deeply unpalatable. And that's what we see in verses 29 and 30. 29, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. There's a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Um, firstly, notice why Levi is, is throwing this great dinner party. Verse 29 says, Levi made Jesus this great feast. So like Levi gets it, he's throwing this feast for Jesus. It's not for his friends. He might be, he, I, I think there's probably an element of him wanting his friends to experience what he's experienced with Jesus, but it's not for his friends. It's not a celebration of Levi's conversion either. It's a party for Jesus. Like Levi gets it, the gospel is about Jesus. But this dinner party, it also makes some people incredibly angry. And those people are the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. So the Pharisees were the representatives of the religious establishment. These are the gatekeepers of, of holiness. If you want to know, if you wanted to know what it looked like to follow after God, to, be, to, be, uh, to please God, to be near Him, you would look at the Pharisees. They, they kept every letter of the law. They actually added on, just to be careful, the Pharisees are those who thought they had God, and yet Luke tells us they are grumbling against Jesus. Jesus. 
That word grumbling, it's, it's a very emotive word. It's what you see the, the Israelites doing in the wilderness in the Old Testament. Anytime God didn't meet up to their standards, they would grumble. And here we have the Pharisees grumbling against Jesus when he isn't living up to their standards. And they're grumbling because Jesus is reclining at this table with tax collectors and sinners, these unclean people. Uh, Table fellowship was significant in this culture. Um, Sharing a meal in this way was Jesus essentially welcoming these people into interpersonal relationship with him. It's him calling these people his friends, which is, it's another example of Jesus being willing to interact with the unclean. It's it's similar to the leper, like Jesus heals the leper rather than the leper infecting Jesus. And it's the same here. Jesus will bring these unclean sinners to repentance and forgiveness rather than being defiled by associating with sinners. But really, these, these Pharisees, these religious elite, they're, they're thinking, why is Jesus eating with someone like Levi, these tax collectors, when they should be eating with people like us? They're thinking these, these tax collectors, they, they epitomize sin. They, 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 they are, they're, they're traitors. They're, they're the worst of the worst. Surely, if Jesus was such a good rabbi, he'd, he'd want to be eating with people like us. That's the grumble behind their grumble. Shouldn't Jesus be eating with those who are living righteous lives, good lives, with those who are well put together, with those who aren't living in unrepentant, deep sin? Shouldn't he be eating with those who have themselves cleaned up, with those who who come to church every Sunday? Surely people should, Jesus should be associated with those kinds of people. But no, Jesus hangs out with the tax collectors, with the sinners, with the scandalized politician, with offensive TV star, with the shady businessman, with the student who's addicted to internet pornography. That's who Jesus befriends and reclines at the table with. And so the question is actually a condemnation. In asking, why do you eat and drink with people like that? They're saying, you shouldn't eat with scum. You should be eating with us, with people who are well put together. But look at what Jesus says in verse 39. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He says, I haven't come to those who think they're well, I haven't come to those who think they are righteous and healed. I've come for the very, very sick. He says, I've come for someone like Peter. Remember Peter, he fell on his face and said, depart from me for I am a sinner. Jesus says, that's who I'm after. People who who understand that they are sick and in need of healing. I've come for, for people like Levi. I've come for the sick. I've come to call sinners to repentance. There's two warnings for us in that text, and both are really crucial for us to hear. Um, The first and probably more obvious one is this warning of having a self-righteous attitude like the Pharisees. Like, beware of thinking that you are not sick. 
Like obviously when Jesus says he's come not for the righteous but for the sick, he's, he's, he's not agreeing with the Pharisees that, yeah, they're, they're okay, that they don't need a physician. No, they're just as sick. They are just as in need of redemption as the tax collectors. They just don't realize it. It's this, this warning, beware of having that kind of self-righteous attitude. And here's, here's the test. Here's how you can, can tell where you're, at, where you're at with this. It's kind of a, a dual test. Firstly, you can tell by how you view yourself. Are you like Peter or Levi that, that recognizes their deep need of a savior? Or do you view yourself as well put together? Not, not too bad. So there's how you view yourself, but, but even more importantly, it's how you view others. You can tell by how you would react when a Levi walks into our church. How would you respond to someone who is a moral outcast coming into this room? Would you get squeamish? I don't want people like that in our church. I want people who are, who are morally clean like me. But listen, a place where everyone is morally clean is actually not a church. It's not what Jesus' mission is. He calls the sick. He calls the, the, the sinners. One commentator puts it, we should expect church to be a, a place full of people who have skeletons in their closet. The great, the great preacher, C.S. Spurgeon, he said, if you knew what I was really like, you wouldn't have me as your minister. If I knew what you were really like, I wouldn't have you as my congregation. But for the grace of the Lord who found us morally, un morally compromised, wretches like us, we should be saying, welcome, friend. That's why Paul says in Romans 15, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. How's Christ welcomed you? He's, he's gone to you when you were sick, when you were an enemy, and he's welcomed you in. That's how we should welcome others in as well. So we should be aware of that self-righteous attitude of the Pharisees. However, we should also beware of the second warning we're presented with right here. For the flip side of the coin of being careful about being a self-righteous Pharisee is be careful about affirming sin. It's important to note that at no point has Jesus affirmed the sin of these social outcasts in the text. He's, he's drawing near to them, yes. He's, he's dining with them. He's inviting them into relationship with him. But at the same time, the language he uses over them is actually quite offensive in a way. The, the, the setting of this kind of feast to be very different from a, a dinner party that we would go to where you'd go into someone's house and you'd only be surrounded in private walls by the invited guests. That's not what takes place here. In these ancient nearest homes, it'd be more in a courtyard and the invited guests will be reclining around the table, but there'd be bystanders roaming around kind of watching in. It's a very nosy community. They'd be kind of on the outside observing, which makes sense of the Pharisees being able to look in and grumble, doesn't it? They're on the outskirts of the courtyard watching in on this feast and grumbling. And so, if you think about it, for Jesus to speak to them in verse 31, he'd, have to, he'd be speaking from the table quite loudly and the, the tax collectors and the sinners would be listening intently to this exchange. But notice in Jesus' good news proclamation of, of, of calling them to repentance, he does indeed call them sick. He, he does indeed call them sinners. In fact, he uses the same exact word, sinners, as the Pharisees call them. 
So it's not that Jesus necessarily disagrees with the Pharisees' assessment of these people. The Pharisees call them sinners, and Jesus says, yeah, they are, but I love them, and I'm calling them to repentance. I'm calling them to to turn from their sinful ways and to follow me. Jesus says there is indeed sin to be dealt with, and Jesus is, is not ignoring that sin. He's actually come to deal with it, to heal them of it, but they must repent. So no one's let off the hook in this passage. Do you see again how Jesus is the most radically inclusive person to ever live? Like no one is too far off. No one at all are welcome. You're not too far gone. There's no one that's too spiritually wicked for me. But he's also the most radically exclusive and divisive person ever to live. Never once does Jesus turn a blind eye to sin. He summons sinners to leave their sin behind and follow after him. And I think for us, that's 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 the 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 part of Jesus' message that is so unpalatable even today. It's it was hated by the Pharisees there. It was hated, it's hated by much of our culture today. It's even hated by parts of the church today. But Jesus is, is, is here to call sin sin. It's exactly what he came to earth to do. Not that we can continue in our sin, but that we can be made whole again. And it's something that actually cost him his life. Quickly as we wrap up, we'll go through the last section briefly. Um, But in these verses, we see the uncontainable majesty of Jesus. Um, In verses 33 to 39, the Pharisees, they continue to misunderstand Jesus and in the previous section, they didn't understand the mission of Jesus. They didn't understand what Jesus was here to do, who he had come to save. But in these next verses, they, can't, they didn't understand the, the majesty of Jesus. They didn't understand uh, what he had come to do, but they also didn't understand who he really was, which you need to understand both, who he is and what he has come to do. And let's read those verses one more time. Verse 33 And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can anyone make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So in, that, in this section, the, the, the behavior, the, the spiritual disciplines of Jesus' disciples is being questioned and, and criticized by the Pharisees. Um, they're wondering why John the Baptist's disciples and, and even their own disciples, they, they offer prayers and they fast. But Jesus says they, they never do. They just eat and drink. They party. They feast. They celebrate. Um, we, we talked about this in the Ash Wednesday service. Fasting, it's, it's the sign of mourning. Um, it's the way of mourning uh, maybe your sin or, or a particularly painful circumstance. It's also this, it's done with this hopeful dissatisfaction of the present state of things, um, which we've actually already seen two examples of this in Luke's gospel. Um, remember in chapter 2, the, prophet, uh, the prophetess Anna, she, she fasted while she was looking forward to the redemption of, his, of, of Jerusalem. In chapter 3, John the Baptist's disciples, they fasted in, in anticipation of the arrival of the one who was coming. The Pharisees, they're criticizing Jesus' disciples for, for feasting, for never, for, uh, for never fasting, for eating and drinking. And, and Jesus' response, I think, is just brilliant. 
He uses this picture of a wedding, and he points out how inappropriate it would be for the guests at a wedding to fast and to mourn. It'd be like the officiant saying, we're here on this terribly sad day. Um, regretful that these two are like to be, what are you doing? This isn't a time for that. A, a wedding day is meant to be a celebration. It's meant to be for, for feasting and dancing. Everyone's filled with joy because the bridegroom is here and he's meeting his bride. That's the call for celebration. And Jesus, he calls himself the bridegroom, which is significant, which is offensive to the Pharisees because in the Old Testament, that's, a, that's the common description for the relationship between God and his people, that God is this bridegroom. The Messiah is, is, call, is, is talked about as being this bridegroom who's coming for his bride. And Jesus is saying, that's me. And so there's, no, there, there's nothing wrong with fasting and mourning and anticipating. In fact, Jesus says there will be a time again coming when the bridegroom and he will be taken away from them in his crucifixion and in his ascension. And, and there will be a time that's coming for Jesus' followers to, it'll be appropriate to have this period of anticipation and, and, and mourning for his, for his return again. But now's not the time for that, he tells the Pharisees. He's there with them. Now's the time for celebration, for eating and drinking and feasting. But that celebration, that feasting, is for those who recognize who Jesus really is, which the Pharisees obviously failed to see. They failed to see who Jesus was, God in the flesh, the Messiah come to seek and save sinners. And so, because they failed to see that, they actually bear down even harder on their rituals, which is what Jesus describes in those, in those two quick parables at the end. Um, the first is about a garment. It says, no one tears, a, uh, kind of cuts or tears a piece of garment from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he's, he'll tear the new, and the old one won't match the, the new one won't match the old one. He's like, no one cuts up a Versace suit and... and puts it on a pre-marked shirt. Like, he's like, you end up with two ruined garments. And Jesus says, so it is with me. What God is doing through me is glorious and new. So stop trying to pull me apart and tack me on to your old religious system. I'm not a patch that will fit your way of thinking. Jesus says it will not work that way. And the wine, he makes the same point. Verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. So they didn't, have, they didn't use bottles of wine back then. They'd, have, they'd use animal hides. Um, and if an animal hide was fresh and new, it'd be elasticy and, and it would stretch. And when wine is fermenting, it, it kind of degasses, it, 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 it expands. And so you'd need a fresh wineskin, an elastic wineskin to be able to stretch with the, with the fermentation process. You can imagine an old animal hide, it dries up, it becomes brittle, and it would burst if you put that fermenting wine inside of it. There's no room to expand. Pharisees, Jesus says, you're trying to confine me and restrict me into your old systems, your old rules, and you cannot do that. Your systems will break, they will leave you wanting, they'll, they'll let you down, because I'm bigger than that. I'm newer than that. 
Remember, Jesus, he's not abolishing the Old Testament. He's, he, he isn't doing away with that old law. He's fulfilling it, which means it's so much. We don't need a human priest in order to relate to, to God anymore because Jesus is this great high priest who intercedes for us. He doesn't abolish the priesthood. He fulfills it. We don't need a, 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 a king in God's kingdom anymore because Jesus is the, the king of kings. He's the great king. We don't need prophets anymore. God used to, remember Hebrews, God used to speak through us to, through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the great and final prophet. All of that is fulfilled in him. We don't need to offer sacrifices anymore. I am the great and final sacrifice, says Jesus. He's saying, I'm too big, I'm too, I'm too wonderful, I'm too new for your old systems. And don't go back to those old realities. Come to me for what is new. It's almost like Levi got that, didn't he? He would have sang that song, Jesus is better. Brings us to verse 39. <laughs> no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. And it almost seems like he's contradicting himself there. I think Jesus is giving this ironical condemnation of the Pharisees here. He's saying they become like obnoxious wine snobs. That they're so stuck in their love for the old that they're missing out on the truly incredible, marvelous vintage that Jesus is. Yes, it's new, but it's so much better. He's the fulfillment of that old wine, the old covenant that they love so much, they just can't see it because of their pharisaical, self-important attitude. You see, verse 39, it's both a summary of all that's going on in these two passages, and it's also a warning for us as well. It's a warning to people like churchgoers who say the old way is better. I, I prefer resting on my heritage I prefer the rituals that, that make me feel good, that make me feel like I'm earning something a little bit. And Jesus says, no, you must know me. In these two passages, Jesus, he says the same thing to two vastly different people groups. He says, he says to Levi and he says to sinners, repent. Leave your sin behind and follow me. And to these religious people, Jesus says, repent. Leave your lives of systems, habit-forming religiosity behind, and follow me. And the story of Luke's gospel is one that one of those groups is willing to change, but the other will eventually hate Jesus so much they will murder him. One group is so convinced that a life of law-keeping and rituals will make them clean. They're so convinced that this will bring them closer to God. The other group is so convinced that they are sick and in need of a doctor, that they are sinners, unworthy to be in the presence of God, but grateful for the tenderness, the wonderful grace of Jesus and his effectual call. They've seen that Jesus is the majestic, powerful, glorious Son of God who descended from on high to save them, to seek them out. And guess what? Their lives are completely transformed and they become followers of Jesus. And I think if we see Jesus for who he really is, if we see Jesus for, for who Levi saw he is and 
who for the, the Pharisees failed to see him, that this is the majestic bridegroom who has come to make us beautiful and alive, then suddenly leaving everything behind, it doesn't feel like that big of a loss anymore. It feels like a feast. It feels like a wedding banquet. Banquet feels like the greatest pleasure in the world. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. It's a feast. It's a meal with Jesus. It's a meal celebrating this astonishing act that he achieved through his body and through his blood. Um, it's not a, a glib dinner at the end of a long day. Thursdays for us is like spaghetti hoops and potato waffles. It's, it's a serious, wonderful feast where we remember what Jesus did for us sinners through the, the breaking of his body, through the pouring out of his blood on the cross. For the Christian, it's a remembrance of what Jesus did for us so that we might live. And so we celebrate and we eat together and we drink together as we remember him. Uh, do you stand with me and we'll, we'll pray and sing and eat?